Hey guys, welcome to Miles of the Merrimack. I'm Captain Chris here with Dandy Daddy. And this is a very special podcast to us because today marks the day of our one year anniversary since we started this whole thing. Woo! Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Mouths of the Merrimack. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Dude, you get a voice. It's like a combination of Fergie and Jesus. Hey, you know, I was blessed. I love it. I love it. Well, so we're really excited now that we're a year into this. Um, <clears throat> when we first got started, we were really sure how it was going to go. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, this past year has been a lot of fun. We've met a lot of great people. Our members have been outstanding. And absolutely, you know, we set out to do what we set out to do here was form a positive fishing community for people to come together to learn, to share experiences, to share ideas. And that's exactly what's happening. And, um, you know, we want to just continue to improve on that and never lose touch of our core values, which is basically uh, positive and being yeah just being positive positive. educational and just having a good vibe man we just want to make sure everybody is promoting the sport in a good way and having a lot of fun and helping the next person out down the line yeah so a couple of things moving forward as we go into year two we've already started with the video podcast which have been a lot of fun to make a lot easier than a lot of the other things that we were doing yep um our members we now have video extra bonus podcasts or segments where we're doing some teaching and some instructions um and we're gonna even take it a step further um in on march 23rd march 30th and april 6th i believe uh we're doing a striper seminar 90 minutes a piece each night uh three different topics for our members um i'm really excited about that it's not going to be like most seminars that you've seen there's no product pushing there's no you know this rod this reel we're going to be talking about techniques and strategies of the whys that we do things we're going to go into real depth because what I figured out either through my own research or talking to the many guests that we've had on our podcast who are excellent fishermen, if you're not good at these fundamental aspects, no matter what you do, there are no tricks. There are no tricks to the trade. It's understanding the fundamentals of fish behavior. So we're going to take a deep dive into that. It's going to be 90 minutes a piece. So what's that going to be? Uh, five and a half hours? Yeah. Four and a half hours? Four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. So if you're not a member of Mouse of the Merrimack, you know, you can sign up for the, sign up for the club. All right, seven bucks a month, and that's one of the aspects that I'm really excited about. Um, another thing that we got going, we're going to do year two of our, we're going to call it the Anglers Expo this year, a new report. It's basically a combination of a flea market and a trade show. We got local shops coming in. We got local plug builders, rod builders, as well as people who, uh, local jig makers. Uh, come get your weights. Come get your your hooks, your lines, your leaders, some custom lures, or, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. We're going to have lots of folks coming in, trying to clean out some stuff that are in their basement, you know, from high end to low end to yeah. just getting started. I just had a major shift in inventory, so I'm going to be offloading a bunch of stuff at the show. Yeah, I know. I know I'm going to have a couple 50 wides for sale. I know that's oh, coming out. really? Yeah. And uh, we're going to have some great raffles, um, lots of lures, a couple of rod combos, um, a bunch of things from our friends um, that have sponsored us. Um, so that's that. That's going to be in April 29th at the Elks Lodge in Newburyport for those of you that are local. So really excited about that. And we're also doing our fish bingo tournament again this year. Um, we had a huge turnout last year. It was a lot of fun. Um and Molly Lees, if you can beat her, she was our winner. She was able to get five fish in a row. She actually 
did a podcast with us and she talked about her her journey how she had one fish left and she went out of her way to go to go find it and go get it so uh prize for that again thank you hudson's outboard a 500 gift certificate to there where you can just load up on all kinds of fishing gear uh freshwater saltwater boating apparel whatever you want they got it or steve can get it for you um second place will be some some swag from hudson sweatshirts t-shirts that kind of stuff and third place is one of my favorite items my grunden flip-flops i know the grunden flip-flops is such a great value like honestly i can't believe i'm going into a second season and it's like i just bought them yeah they're great they're super comfortable i have a bad back i broke my back when i was younger so I'm always looking for things that make my back a little bit easier after a long day of fishing or a long season of fishing. And those uh, Grunden sandals definitely have that sea deck in there that are really great. Um, another thing coming out for our members is we just did, you'll see it, uh, I'll post it today. Um, Dan was able to find the ultimate sluggo container. Oh, yeah. Absolutely love it. I've been looking all winter, actually years, looking for the perfect thing to hold my soft plastics in one confined space. So I made a little video up, a little review of this product from Reaction Tackle. And if you're a member, um, they actually gave us a discount code. We wrote them an email, told them how much we liked it, told them about Miles of the Merrimack. So um, if you're a member, go on our site and we'll have the code right there for you to type in at checkout and you're going to save some money. So, you know, you can't beat that, Dan. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And awesome, awesome. We're wrapping up some fishing shows. We get the Plum Island Surfcaster show, another local club. We'll have a booth there. So come by and say hi. I'm doing a presentation at nine o'clock that day on seasonal striper strategies. Talk about how, you know, basically I think our season breaks down to about 10 little mini seasons and you know how to fish those effectively so i'm excited about that going to squeeze in as much as i can in about uh, an hour of talk time and uh yeah again you can come there and meet us sign up for the tournament sign up to become a member you know a lot of things going on um but first of all most importantly thank you to our members people who have put their trust in us and been engaged on the fishing forum that's starting to pick up now uh now that the season's rolling around a lot of good questions being asked a lot of guys getting in the mode now that we're into march so, um, yeah, just really excited for year two. I'm really happy with the way year one went. And uh, now that we're kind of committing to this video thing, it's going to be a lot easier for us to put out content, particularly Absolutely. during the season. Yep. So, sure. and, you know, speaking of fishing shows, our guest tonight is Captain Greg Vespi. He is the head of the Rhode Island Sportsman Anglers. Rhode Island, what was Rhode it? Island Saltwater Anglers Association. Rhode Island Saltwater Anglers Association, or you guys might know it as RISA. Um, he's got a big show coming up, the biggest fishing show in the Northeast down in Providence uh, this weekend. Uh, he's a fantastic guy. I've been friends with Greg for six or seven years now. He just became the head of it a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's the premier uh, fishing, saltwater fishing show by far on the East Coast. So, you know, if you get a chance, swing down there this weekend. And, you know, me and Dan will be there Friday and Saturday night just kind of walking around, hanging out. Uh, if you see us, come say hi, introduce yourselves. But. You know, it's a great time to go take a look at some gear that you might not get at your local shops. Yep. All right. So without further ado, we had some uh, some technical difficulties <laughs> with we Greg's made it podcast, happen. but yeah. we made it happen. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to be the segue to that. Unfortunately, it's going to be mostly audio. Uh, Greg's going to send me some pictures so we can put something together. But uh, great podcast. Talked a lot about his stuff. He's an excellent fisherman. Talk about squid. Amazing guy. Talk about squid. Talk about thresher sharks. Talk about tatog. Uh, we talked about his involvement in RISA and what they're doing with the policies and the and the kids groups. Uh, talk about his boat. He's got a wicked cool little boat, a Swan Point. Never heard of it. Check it out. They don't make them anymore, but 
what a neat little fishing machine that is. So, all right, guys. Well, again, thank you. Thank you for supporting us throughout the year, listening to the podcast and coming up here. Uh, we're going to have Greg Vespi. Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks again, man, guys. Really appreciate it. And Dan, speaking of all the fishing shows that are coming up, the biggest fishing show in New England is coming up this week, next next Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, and I can't wait, honestly. It's something I look forward to every year because what well, well, we flipped the tube. Let's get a hotel room and have a good time. So yeah, awesome. last year we got a hotel room, spent Friday night, got to see the show a little bit on Friday, a little bit on Saturday. There's enough to go for both days. And tonight our guest is the one and only Greg Vespi of the Rhode Island Saltwater Anglers Association. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All, right. Risa <clears throat> All right. So we got Greg Vespi, the head of the Rhode Island Saltwater Anglers Association here tonight. The guy who puts on this wonderful show for everybody on the East coast that comes out to check out. It's the, the biggest fishing show of the year. Good friend of mine. I've known Greg for about geez, six, six or seven years now. Oh, at least. Great fisherman. And we got a lot to talk about tonight. Greg, how are you doing today? Really well, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to uh, be part of the one-year anniversary episode. That's uh, that's great for you guys. Con- congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Um, you know, what's it like preparing for something like this? I mean, there's going to be so much that goes into it. There is. It it is amazing how many facets that you kind of need to to you know cross cross your t's and dot your i's that from from moving schedules because. Some of the vendors that arrive with trucks and we have tractor trailers that come in with stuff. We have, you know, giant fish tanks and then we have all the mom and pop vendors that kind of mix in and to try to figure out a sequence so that you, you fill the show so that you don't somehow get it so that you get yourself in a corner where, where somebody can't get their booth set up because they don't have a way to get to it. Um, It's amazing. All the little things. Yeah, it's like think it's, of. it's almost like playing like a real life game of Tetris, right? <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. Um, so that you know, that's always a challenge. And then just we've got people coming in, coming in from Washington, like flying from Texas. We've got exhibitors fly coming in from Washington State and California, Florida. So there's like the logistics of kind of how they're going to get their products how they're going to get everything in their, their displays. Um, it's amazing. Just all the little moving parts. Um, that is amazing. New, how many new vendors who how have many never vendors, been part of a show? How many vendors and exhibitors are there this year? So we just, just literally five minutes before I jumped on with you, we bumped up to 312 booths. Wow. So wow. It, it, it's an amazing you. amount of, of different exhibitors. And, and it's really, you know, one of the neat flavors of the show is you've got these high-end, high-dollar national exhibitors that are part of the show. And then right next to them, you've got mom and pops that, you know, have been making jigs in their basement all year for this show. And to me, that's the favorite part of the show is that it's got this neat feel that's kind of classic Rhode Island. It's, it's, you know, high-end exhibitors, mom and pops, everybody between charter captains, um, you know, TV stars, like there, there's all, you never know who you're going to see there and um, people really well known within the fishing community and then people just trying to make a mark for themselves. So it's, it's really a neat, I think, neat show. It, like you said, it's got that swath of everything, no matter where you are in the angling spectrum, whether you're a beginner, whether you're super advanced, um, whether you know everybody or you don't know anyone at all, you can go in there and have a great time, shop around, yeah. grab, grab a good deal. 
Um, one of the reasons why I like going is because your fishery in Rhode Island, in terms of the gear that you use for rods, reels, and lures, is I always feel like is like a year or two ahead of where we are um, up here on the north coast of Massachusetts. So when I get down there, I get to play with all those rods and reels that we don't normally see that haven't quite made their way in popularity up here. Um, you know, we see guys like the custom jig, the custom rods that they have down there. Um, you know, custom lures. You get to see all the high, high end stuff that's coming out that's new. Um, different types of braid, different types of hooks. Just that sort of thing is really neat for me to go down and pl play with in person instead of ordering online. And that's another huge advantage to the show of me for me when I go down there. Yeah, for me, like as being a rod builder, it's awesome to get down there and like have you know Jane and Killsong that may there. Um, you know, flexing all the black hole blanks and checking them out really are, it's amazing because everything is, for us, seems to be ordered online, go by the specs. Hopefully it is what you want it to be, but to get that experience is great. And then it's just all great people. Everyone's in a good mood. It's a good time. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with you. And I think it, it's a pretty relaxed show, even though there's a lot of people that attend. Nobody really seems in a rush uh, because once you're up in the convention center, you know, there's no point in, in rushing through anyway. Um, so I just think people, it's not like some of the other shows where there's this, like, you know, can be a push to get in and, and then you almost get through and then you're, you're done. Um, people really hang out. They talk. We try to have really good seminars that, that really don't focus on product push and really focus on trying to help people out with some of the newer techniques. Or um, We even added in some fly fishing seminars this year that we've never had before. And we try to cover everything from, from the Cape um, through Rhode Island, you know, into Connecticut so that people, even if you travel to come to the show, there's a good chance you can hear a seminar that's going to have some application to your, your area. As somebody who gives a lot of seminars, you know, I'm giving one for the Plum Island Surfcasters in a couple of weeks and then actually the week after your show. And then, you know, I, I do quite a few of those as well. I did one for you guys online yeah. I think, last year. Yeah. Um, and I loved going to seminars too. You know, I, I do it as a teacher. I do it as a football coach. I do it as a fisherman because I always figure if I can go to a seminar and I can pull at least one or two things out of it that I'm going to try or that I'm going to use, I think it's totally worth it. So those of you that are listening that are coming from our neck of the woods, you know, from Northern Mass, don't be afraid to go sit on a seminar and learn something new. Um, I remember a few years ago when I just started doing my spot locking and pitching out mackerel and pogies, I got to watch um, Mike Roy do a seminar and something like that. And it was just good to see that somebody else was doing it and having great success. And I picked up a couple of things from him. And, you know, if you're somebody that's always wanting to learn, um, pay attention to these guys. They're the ones that are going out there every single day and putting it in. And just because it's not your area doesn't mean it's something that you can't adapt to what you do in, in your space. Yep. And we try real hard to rotate our seminar speakers so that if you come in past years, we try not as good as they are. I still try to get different voices, different faces um, for the seminars. So we, we really try hard because we know a lot of the people that come to the show come year after year. So we try to um, give them a mix of speakers that um, hopefully each one can, you know, something can be learned for, from the speaker. And you're not giving any seminars this year because I think you're going to be pretty busy. 
No, no. So believe it or not, I, I did. So I didn't give any last year because I was crazy busy because that was like my literally my first one that I actually ran. Post-COVID um, too. Yeah. So we had somebody unexpectedly drop out. So I actually jumped in on two. So I think I'm doing one Friday and Saturday. Friday All evening right. and 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 um, Saturday. So, yeah. So I actually am doing two on uh, how to get the most out of a small boat. Is, is the topic that I'm going to try to cover. And I talk a little bit about hole choice. I talk a little bit about actual setup on the boat. And then I talk a bit about attitude because I think, <laughs> there, I think you know, it's a three-part, it's a three-part to get to, if you're going to fish out of a, oh, to get the most out of a small boat, I think it's really, you know, th three real factors. And the mental aspect, when you fish out of a small boat, to be as successful as possible, um, some of that is how you approach it mentally. So that's what I, I try to go after as well as set up and as well as your, your whole choice certainly. Um, can yeah, that totally it. makes sense though, because I don't know, like I have a smaller boat and there's certain things that I have to deal with sometimes. And that just, I don't even think about it anymore because I've been dealing with it for so long, but if you've had the luxuries of a bigger boat, then it kind of makes it a different, it's a whole different story when you get onto a smaller boat, I guess. Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about is if you have a single fishing technique or approach that, that that's your love and that's what you do, then the bigger the boat, the better for you, because there's going to be more and more days out there where you can do that singular approach. But that if you have a small boat, you can't do that because there's just not going to be enough days usually that if you're only going to do one approach that you can do it. And I, yeah, explanation I use is off Rhode Island, there's a, you know, Brenton Reef, one of the big rock structures. So plenty of guys love to, you know, tube and worm Brenton Reef. Well, that's great. But if that's all you want to do, and you want to do that every single time you go, you better have a pretty big boat, because there's going to be plenty of days where you can't tube and worm off Brenton Reef with a small boat. So I talk about, you know, the small boat guy has to be, I think, more flexible, more varied in his approaches, and even the species that he targets. Because there may be some days where striped bass just just aren't in the playbook because the conditions just don't allow for it. But okay, we're back after a little bit of technical difficulties. We're going to go straight audio here. So, uh, Greg, you're in the process of talking to us about small boating, uh, small boat boating, and how you can adjust and uh, being basically a jack of all trades. Yeah, I mean that's been my contention, Chris, for a while. Is that to if you want to be really successful in a small boat, then one of the things you have to be willing to do is to, you know, not, not fight the weather sometimes in the conditions and realize that there's probably an, the conditions that make it hard to fish for one species might actually be favorable to fish for another species. So if you're willing to change it up, um, you know, one of the examples I use is if it's really rough and you just can't get out front and it's just not going to be a great day for striped bass, but those same conditions might give you a perfect drift wind with tide for fluke or, you know, or things like that, or, or you might have to go inshore and, and do something different, but there's usually some fish to catch. And the key with a small boat is, is to not force the issue and, and go find the fish that, that the conditions are allowing you to, you to catch that day. And especially with where you're fishing, you have an incredible fishery with all kinds of species and a lot of water inside the bay to work with. Like you guys got squid, you got fluke, you got tog, you got sea bass, you got stripers. So you get a lot to bang around inside with and make a day productive, especially if you're that weekend angler and you only get two days a week to go. Um, 
instead of pushing it and being uncomfortable and hating life, you can find another thing to do, which saves your day. Yeah, no, absolutely, Chris. And, and, and that's in heck, I find joy in catching any fish, right? If my rod's bent, if, if, if I've got something tugging on the other end, I'm pretty happy. Um, you know, if it's something big, that's even better, but it, I'm just happy catching fish. And, you know, so a small boat for me is perfect. Um, because I can take advantage of, like you say, the, the multiple species. Um, and then on a, on a good day on a, with a, a clean weather window, um, I, you know, my power plant's pretty, pretty reliable. I, I feel really confident in my engine and my boat in terms of its abilities. So on a really nice day with a weather window, I'll push things and I'll go out, out front fairly far. Um, but those days don't happen all the time. So you can't just try to do that. Far enough to get some awesome thresher sharks, huh? Yeah, I, I was uh, really lucky last summer, right, for when the fish literally doesn't or barely fits in the boat. Uh, you, you've done good in a little boat. And, in fact, I, I laughed. I, I think it the last one we caught, it took us almost as long to figure out how to get it in the boat as it did to, to actually land it. Um, so, that you know, that's quite an experience for me anyway. I, I'm Anytime I have a chance to put a fish that bit that big on the deck, it's a uh, a special thing. Greg, what what kind of boat do you have? So I have a, a I call it a unicorn because I've I've never seen another one with my own eyes. I have seen a few on the internet for sale. It's a Swan Point, which was only made for a few years. Some fellas, I believe, left Grady White and formed their own company. Um, so it was built in North Carolina, and it it has a. Um, a really neat hull design. It's got a very, very deep bow and with almost, almost that goes vertical, almost, it almost goes straight down into the water. So even though it's only a 19 foot boat, when you're running it, even pretty much up on plane, you still have almost 19 feet of boat actually making contact with the water. So it, it rides really big, as they say, for a small boat. Um, Chris has been in it a few times, and Chris, what do you think? It right, it kind of it's deceiving how small it actually is, right? When you're in it, I cannot say enough good things about that little boat, man. The way you have it tricked out, the way it rides is unbelievable. It's actually made in Washington, North Carolina, oh, okay. where um, where pair customs are made, where our boats are made, and uh, you definitely see that Carolina influence in it with the bow with the bow flare. Um, it's like a good height. It's got plenty of fishing room in the back and. It, it's a little battle tank and you you restored most of it if I can remember correctly right right it was a two-year project for me and I, I ripped it just about down to the hull to the to the hull I, I replaced almost all the stringers the fuel tank the, the whole deck um, I did do some modifications I moved the console forward to give me a little more room in the back end um, and I raised the transom height so that I didn't have to have the splash guard which the, the old style boat tended to have that that low transom cut notch for the motor uh, mm -hmm. for the outboard so I, I got that rid of that and then I was able to get rid of the splash guard so that gave me another you know two two feet of movable space in the back um, so I didn't I didn't cl fully close off the transom it's still notched for the outboard um, but I did raise it so that I needed the next longer leg and that cuts down on needing the splash guard nice yeah, and you get a, what, a 140 Zook on that? Yeah, and, and for me, that's, yeah. you know, that's fine, right? A, a 150 or, or a 175 would certainly make the boat move a little faster. But most days, most conditions, the 140 will push me fine. 
and it just sips fuel, which then lets me take that small boat like further offshore because, um, you know, I know I've got plenty of fuel capacity and I'm happy with it. I mean, some guys might, might want a little more speed. My, my top end is probably 26 to 30 miles an hour. So, I mean, it moves, but certainly not as fast as some boats. Um, well, it kind of definitely has that down East style hull, like that feel of it where it's more yep. plowing through the water. But when you're a 19 footer, you, you don't want speed. You'd rather be comfortable in like a one and a half foot, uh, chop or or some rollers out in the bay so it, it's a very versatile boat it's an excellent fishing platform i mean when we go talking we usually have like three people on one side and i don't feel a list at all um it's very nimble you're saving on gas you did a great job on the restoration and it's just it's got some sexy lines on it greg thanks yeah no it is it is pretty and i had the 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 T-top custom welded and I had it made a little smaller. So one of the people look at the boat and they don't think it's a 19 foot, but part of that is because it's deceiving because you're, you're looking at what you think would be a normal size T-top. And it seems like there's plenty of space, you know, both in the bow and off the transom, but I actually had it made pretty small. So it does protect you when you're running the boat, if there's heavy, you know, heavy rain and things, but it doesn't give you quite as much protection as most T-tops do. Um, but the upside of that is you've got way more, like you're not constantly worried about where the T-top is when you're casting uh, or setting the hook or, you know, things like that. You're, you're not banging into it every time. How was it pulling that thresher into the boat? Yeah, no, it was quite an experience. Uh, the, we got two, one, one was a little, one was the, a male and it was a little thinner and a little lighter, but they were both, um, 12 feet plus wow so so yeah so a few hundred pray so that's the, like the, 24 feet of fish right oh it was with the tail or? no yeah yeah with the tail so oh, they okay. were weight wise we're talking the one was probably around three and change and the bigger one was you know all a four and a quarter um so for my little boat you get a 400 pound fish in that thing um because i have about you know a bit of a bow cap and it's like there's not a lot of there was maybe a foot at each end of that you know when it was laid out on the awesome. on the whole boat <laughs> so coming home the bigger one somebody hit it with the hose to try to rinse a little bit and they woke it up so that was a little bit if you want to see like four guys in a you know in 12 feet of shark <laughs> in a 19 foot boat there was this mad scramble for about 30 seconds it's terrifying. Yep. How long yep. did it take you to get them in? So the the bigger one stayed down. It never jumped once. In fact, we never saw it until the end game. Like never even put eyes on that thing. That was like three hours. Um, the first one jumped a bunch, and I think it tired it out a little bit, and it was a little smaller. Um, so we got that one in probably two and a quarter. Um, but the, the second one just, just broke your back. It just, from the minute it hit, it went down to the bottom and it just stayed there. You just, you couldn't move it. It just would swim with the boat. That's awesome. Now you were, did you go out specifically targeting sharks? Yep. Yep. That, that was our intention. And, um, and we were, you know, to appeal to thresher sharks, right? Typically you want to try to have maybe a little bit of a smaller bait than you might for some other sharks. Mm -hmm. So we caught the first one on a whole giant squid. That, that we had caught, you know, earlier in the season. Um, I vacuum seal them and kind of rig them, almost like you would a sword bait, right? Yeah, when I try to fish for thresher sharks with, with squid, I, I kind of have a, a plan in place. And then the second one, we jigged up a chub mackerel. 
and you know so pound and a half two feet you don't really want big baits with at least in my experience i don't like big baits for threshers because they just don't have that big of a mouth yep and and they and they're not really designed to like cut and rip a you know bigger bait in half um so i think that one of the mistakes people make when they thresher shark fish is that they use baits that are too large that's cool what so what uh like real sizes do you guys did you fight it stand up in a belt and harness or do yep you, yeah. yep so just 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 a belt um and i use santiago finnor 50s are kind of my preference i do have a 50 wide as well but the ones the, the two that we caught we just caught on straight 50s yeah i just actually bought two 50 narrows yeah well, i think and, too if you're using just the belt and you know don't have the harness like the narrow a narrower spool is nice to have Yep, yeah, and that's you know, a th a th um, in the conditions that I'm going out in there anyway in the ocean that far out, it's not going to spool me because I should be able to keep up with it. Like a fifty's fine, you know. It I can run with that fish and stay stay with it yeah, and not still to be able. To... Nineteen foot boat, I'm, it's definitely pulling the boat around. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So so for me, a fifty's fine. Um, you know an 80 would probably be a quicker you know result but i just my boat 80s just don't fit with my boat they're yeah. they're just a little big and and i don't really have the trans i would have to reinforce i think the gun i wouldn't want to put an 80 like in a rod holder against the fish because i don't think my gunnels are really intended for that i would probably want to reinforce them a little bit more before i actually tried you know with a larger setup if i actually tried to fight it from the gunnel i don't, I don't know that would work really well in my boat anyway yeah it's always a sketchy situation on a small boat when you have um the swivel rod holders and the big gear when you're really putting out like 35 40 pounds of drag like yep. yeah you got some, always something to to be nervous about there um i want to get back to something so you got your thresher and that was yep. like that was i remember you telling me when you sent me the picture it was like one of your things that you wanted to check off your bucket list catching a thresher on your own boat Right, so I I had I had gone out with uh, Captain B.J. Sylvia, who's uh, another probably friend of the show, or, or if not, probably at some point will be. Yeah, we're um, gonna try to get him on. We got some openings coming up, and uh, yeah, and he'd be a great one to have on here for sure. Right, he's a character, right? <laughs> oh. So he, he, he you can't not listen to B.J. and not laugh and have a good time. So that that would be fun. But B.J. had had taken me out, and we were out sharking, and we actually had a. a really large thresher on and i didn't have this i was hadn't fought very many really large fish before in my life and i think i was overexcited and the rod was probably a little long like it, it wasn't the ideal setup for a big shark that especially one that was going to stay down on the bottom yeah and we had hooked and it just it just flat out kicked my butt mm -hmm. and with the first fish of my life that I've, i mean it, it it just had its way with me and that was it we it finally actually which was amazing it it, it broke the the the, um, the the wire leaders snapped really and yeah and so what we thought was it seemed like we it broke because we knew about how long it was it seemed like it broke about six inches from the hook and what we really thought was the the wire had gotten wedged up between a pair of teeth yeah and over the course of an hour or two it just back and forth, back and forth. It, it just basically, it was a single strand, strand, it was piano wire. And I, I think it just finally created a weak spot. Um, so anyway, we were, you know, heart, oh, yeah. we were heart, heart, heartbroken when it happened. Um, but anyway, that stuck with me. 
I had never, it was my, you know, one and only chance at a large thresher and I'd never had another opportunity. And boy, it, once you get a fish that just kicks your butt, right, it just stays with you. And you're just like, oh man, man, I just, you know, I want, I'd like to get one. I'd like to like kind of redeem myself. So it was really fun to go out in my own boat and, um, you know, have that intention, try to find one and, and then get it in the boat. So I, I was, uh, I felt redeemed a little bit after, after we were able to do that. Great redemption story. And you, you're somebody who's been fishing your entire life. And it's like, and there's probably so many people that don't get that opportunity ever to go offshore and pull on something big like a tuna or a thresher or a mako or even a blue shark for the first couple of times you catch them, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, and it's a whole different ball game. You might think you know, but you don't know until you're there. Yeah, I had gone to every seminar I could, you know, from Jack Sprangle to Robbie Taylor to be like around here, kind of the guys that do, you know, do a fair amount of shark fishing. And I tried to soak up everything I could learn. And um, when when the when the the rod went off the first time, I mean, it just smoked that squid, just just like screamed. And you know, we we closed closed over the drag, and and when it came tight, the thing just like rocketed out of the water and did a full backflip. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, we got it. Like, we you know, okay, here's our chance. Like, you know, it's not in the boat by any stretch, but like, we've got the right species on the line. You know, we're tight to what we want to be tight with. Awesome. Yeah, it was so exciting. We and, um, um, one of the thrushes that we got, we hooked it up right behind the boat on the flat line, and it literally jumped all around the boat like four or five times and it like basically like like a pinwheel like all around the boat took us up the port side off the bow off the starboard side as line was just ripping off the reel it was the most insane thing i've ever seen in my life it was was scary well what are we gonna do they're amazing fish really they're so cool you know if i think if it wasn't for mako sharks being being you know even even probably more unbelievable um i mean i think right the only thing that that threshers lack is just they don't have the teeth and quite you know quite that that mako attitude maybe but boy when you hook one um they are something special and they're they're just beautiful I mean, incredible fish, right? Just graceful, incredible fish. Yeah, and, like, you see the pictures of them. They look brown, but when you see them, like, in close-up, like, you can see, like, those purples and the blue. Oh, yeah. They're They're really beautiful, and that eye and that tail is no joke. That thing is an absolute weapon. Yep. So, right, in a real small boat, the end game, you have to get it alongside the boat, and you have to walk, walk, the, the angler that has, has the rod has to walk to the bow mm-hmm. because in my little boat, you're not going to do anything off the transom. Like nope. it's just not going to happen. So you have to get the fish parallel along the side of the gunnel. So you have to kind of walk the fish up right when you get about ready. And then the fish has to swing. You have to put the boating gear a little bit more. So the fish kind of starts to kind of come tight, right, right along the side of the gunnel. Like it's a neat little technique. Um, and that's when I have a flying gaff. I did get a dart over the winter, so I will have that in the future as an option. Um, but I, I threw a flying gaff once at a thresher, and I don't know if I ever want to do it again. I think that thing scared me more than the thresher did. Yeah, so it, I don't. It did pop out, and we had to hit it again. Uh, so yeah, I don't know how this is going to go, but the the flying gaff worked fine. Although the the second one, now my eyes were on the flying gaff, and you know where I was sticking it, what was going on but I heard that the tail slammed the outboard. Like the oh, tail yeah. came all the way around the back of the boat, like drilled the motor. Right? Cause I, I heard it hit and I felt the shutter. We have one. Um, so yeah, you have all to the way be around careful. 
the the tail came we were tail roping out in the back corner and it came all the way up and around to the inside of the boat and slapped the inside of my gunnel and it sounded like a gunshot went off it was yep. absolutely insane yeah they can definitely clear the deck right if, if they if they get in position <laughs> and you're not you know and they're they're still kind of green boy they they have enough power to, to clear a deck pretty quick with that we tail. dragged it backwards about eight miles and it was still alive no with two no, shots and basically two harpoons and rake gills <laughs> good eating though oh yeah in fact i just had some the other day i actually had i broiled a few steaks and um boy that was phenomenally good and so far it's held up all winter like i'm just really impressed though with the quality i was just gonna say i'm not a big fish eater so we just kept a few steaks for ourselves and then we pretty much gave it away to everybody in town <laughs> yeah i mean you do right there's no question you do get a lot um but i know with me by the time i like we had you know a couple guys on the boat um we had somebody that came and helped us process it um at the house and everything. So by the time you get done taking care of a few people, uh, you know, it does divide up, but yeah, it, it's a fair amount of meat on a shark. There's no doubt. Yeah. And I, I, like I said, I was really surprised at how, how good it tasted, especially coming from somebody who doesn't eat fish. Yep. Which I, I, you must love when I come down there and go togging with you because I don't keep any of it. And right. Like, right. I know it's, it's, it's like, it's like Christmas or Thanksgiving when you show up. Cause yeah, no, it is great. And, and there, there certainly are, um, you know, so many ways if you like fish right in, in new england anyway the good news is most of our fish taste pretty darn good um so for people that do like fish there's so many choices here of what you can keep you know if you do want to enjoy some fine fine meals um so I, that's just part of the charm of new england most of our fish taste pretty good some taste outstandingly good well one of the things that you're a master at catching and I'm dying to get down there on a trip with you if I ever get the time, is uh, squid fishing, man. We yeah. It, a little bit up here. I get I get, might get a day or two down at the Cape during the day, but your whole operation is is incredible. Could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, your setup and what you do with, with the squid? Sure. So, so, right, what makes Rhode Island, we don't tend to have quite that, crazy day bite that the cape can get um in the spring but what we do have is a season that tends to last much longer um and it's more of a nighttime bite and they'll come in you know they arrive in rhode island it's gonna be this year might be a little early right because you know it's the water's not quite as cold as it typically gets um but basically sometime and usually mid mid-april and then they'll stay here really until the bluefish show up. Like the stripers will start to harass them some, but you can still catch squid um, in the deeper waters because the stripers in the spring tend to go more shallow where the water's warmer. So it's kind of nice. Like they'll they'll bump into each other a bit, but you can still squid fish. It's really not until the bluefish show up that it kind of really puts an end to the spring squid fishing. Um, and we'll go out. I love to go out in the afternoon, do a little bit of tog fishing. Um, you know, just to try to catch a few. And then as soon as it gets dark, I'll head to some of my spots. And I have a combination of underwater lights in the boat, as well as some topside light systems that I've made out of um, LED. And I run some 12 volt systems that have little like little spreader bars. And I'll, you know, set them up on either side of the of the gunnels or depending on the current or off the back transom. And it, it makes a, I'm not the brightest guy out there in terms of, of light. Well, I'm not, I'm not the brightest guy out there ever, <laughs> ever. My, a lot of people would say that. Um, but basically 
you know, you don't have to be the brightest boat out there, but you have to be able to generate some light to, to attract. Um, so, so you mentioned you had underwater lights. Do you have ones that change different colors or do you have a specific color that you like if you're willing to share? Or? So I set, I set mine up, mine are green. My underwater lights are green. My top side lights are just, are just white or, or, mm -hmm. or clear. Um, and I like the green ones. I don't know. I know some guys can, you know, can rotate colors or switch colors. And I, I'm sure some nights that probably um, could be used effectively, but generally speaking, I'm relatively happy with the green ones. And I am definitely happy with the white, like the white lights from above. Cause I, I think most of the lights from above the squid are used to seeing are either the moon or bridge lights or, you know, things like that. So I think that part seems to work pretty well. And that's Absolutely. another thing that's kind of nice is you're night fishing, but you're not like in complete darkness, like when you're striper fishing at night, that you have you have that light from your, your bar coming over top. It makes it a lot easier. It's not as intense as like trying to stay quiet and, and perfectly still and silent and dark when you're striper fishing. You know, right. No, absolutely. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to have to be that kind of stealthy. And, um, and then I, I have under, excuse me, under gunnel lights as well in the boat. So the boat's got some light, which won't blind you because it just kind of goes down to the deck and those lights are green as well. Um, so that helps a little bit if you're, you know, trying to chase a squid around the deck or something like you can see where it's at, or if you drop a squid jig, you, you can find it without having to step on it. Um, so, you know, th those are handy things. And I usually take, I always say I take basically like what I call reservoir trout gear or for guys that have ever fished for walleye to me, those are the rods that are the, the most effective for squid fishing. You want something fairly soft um, for two reasons. One, you know, you want to be able to detect a bite. And then the other thing is the stiffer rods tend to snap off tentacles. If you have a large squid, they can pull, I mean, they're not a bluefish, but, but, you know, they can generate some force. And if your rod is really stiff, there's a tendency if the squid really, um, pushes hard the other direction, you can end up just with a few suction cups and, you know, half a tentacle um, especially on the larger ones which is sometimes like for me the ones i really want to try to catch so a softer rod kind of lets you put more squid in the boat and um, you're generally probably fishing multiple jigs too and the other thing about a softer rod is you don't have to worry when you're swinging them onto the deck about high sticking it and things snapping and breaking um i equate when i go when i go uh squid fishing it's just like mackerel fishing to me in terms of the gear that i use you know i'm the same way with mackerel I like using a softer rod so i'm not ripping them off those little tiny sabiki hooks there's a little bit of give there yep and to swing them onto the boat and actually they kind of they kind of look and fight like macro but it's really cool like going in the daytime i'm sure you get it during the nighttime just watching them swim and watching them eat absolutely cracks me up it's just because you know I, I don't get to do it often so i i have a lot of fun i think i'm going to try to take my mom and dad down down to the cape this year for a day and go do a little squid fishing yeah it's one of my favorites the kick out of it oh it is it, it, it's it's one of my favorite things to do with guests because it's fun, you know, inks flying just to watch them change colors. And like, it's just an amazing creature um, that, you know, kids, kids love them. Adults love them. Like it, they're just, they're really neat and they're fun. And, um, and there is some skill to it, but you can also take somebody that's really very limited in their, in their experience and skill level, and they can still have fun catching squid. 
So it, it, it is a it's a great a great thing to target. We we do have squid up here. I have caught them while mackerel fishing during the day, incidentally, <clears throat> a couple of times. But I don't know if it's anything worth targetable during the day. But I know a lot of the guys that are offshore at night are definitely getting a ton of squid. And I don't I don't think I know anybody that typically takes out a boat to go squid fishing. But there are piers and things like that around our area that people go to. Um, do you have any suggestions for somebody who up here who might be getting into squid fishing? What kind of um, lures and setups that they that they should use? Sure. So, so there there are basically, I mean, like anything, there's there's all kinds of variations, but there's basically two styles of squid jigs. There's one that looks like kind of an upside down ice cream cone, and those tend to be called Coleman's. That's kind of just kind of what they're referred to. Um, and then the other kind is more like a minnow style, like a shrimp or a minnow. Okay. And um, Yozori is, they're commonly called like Yozoris, but there's certainly other manufacturers that, that make um, squid jigs. There's just as many as there are any other type of lure. But so you, you want to get a few that either look like a shrimp or a minnow, or you want to get a few of these Coleman's that have like a thin little body and more like a, like a grappling hook basket kind of look. Um, yeah. And anyway, when the squid are being kind of tentative and soft, more often than not, the, the little Coleman jigs are, are tend to be more effective. When the squid are aggressive, um, a lot of people like to use like a little one ounce or, you know, if there's a lot of current, you know, an ounce and a half sinker, and then above it, they'll put one or two of those Yozori shrimp style jigs. So, um, so those, kind of those are the two basic, you know, it's either a Coleman or a, or a, or a minnow slash shrimp style jig. So those shrimp styles, um, are you fishing them like almost like a high-low haddock rig with a weight in the bottom and then like two dropper loops? Yep, exactly. Right. The, yep. Just like the, you call it a chicken rig or right, a high-low. Um, absolutely. And you want to space them a little bit so that if you have to leave space, if you get a squid on the, my suggestion is anyway, if you space those jigs enough so that if you happen to catch a squid on the top on the high, as you're slowly reeling it in, that squid's going to drop down and you don't really want it to try to cover up the second jig because a lot of times if you can catch one and they're in the area and you kind of reel slow when you first hook the first one, there's a reasonable chance you can pick up a second. But if, if your jigs are too close together, that almost never happens because the, the first squid kind of covers up that second jig once he's hooked. Yeah, they're they're a lot of fun. Just like you said, the color changes and the the ink fight is always always a riot. Yep. Always a riot. I remember the first one I caught up here. I wasn't. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even expect it. I went to grab it. I was actually pretty young. It was pretty young in my fishing career. God, it must have been nine or ten. And we accidentally got one, incidentally. And I went to grab it and I just squeezed it and I just got black ink all over me. <laughs> and I I was like, what? Oh my God, they actually do that. You know, it, it's amazing how much ink. I mean, they I, don't I, stop. They no, stop. right. I, I am continually shocked, and even when I'm cleaning them, like the next day, I'm like, these things still have ink in them. Like, it is amazing. Um, Greg, is I there know, a process you do to harvest them on the boat? Do you like put them in the? Do you put them in the live well, or do you? So throw you them in the can, right? The, I mean, I knew a, uh, a charter captain that liked a fairly clean boat, but also knew the value of catching squid. And he actually had basically like a basket system with like, a, you know, some pool pool noodles that would float next to his boat. And he would, when he would catch a squid, he would drop them in there first. 
So they would basically still swim around, but they would kind of panic. They would bump into the basket and they would ink out a fair amount um, so that when he did at the end of the night, bring him into the boat, you know, that was the probably the cleanest technique I've ever seen. But you know, my theory is once I have a squid in the boat, I don't like to be dropping them over the side, you know, out of the boat. <laughs> um, so I don't tend to go with that, but I have seen that work. Um, but I've seen a fair number, like, you'd be surprised how many squid miss the bucket when you're trying to like unhook them over the side of the yeah. boat and get them to land in the, you know, in the basket. You definitely, unless you're really, really focused, you're going to lose a few. And I just assume get them in the boat and keep them there. They're just such a wild creature. Like yep. I, I, everything that can go wrong with those things, they slip free the ink out. They're yep. just so cool. Again. I love yep. watching them come up to the come up to the jigs or just under the boat. Are you? Um, so I know where, where we go up here. It's mostly anchor. We mostly anchor for them. Are you anchoring? You drifting? Kind of a combination of both. So 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 I really do like to spot. Like one of the times that I love to spot lock. Um, that I, I'm fortunate enough, right, to be able to have one of the Minkota spot lock systems. Um, you know, so I will use that a lot because where I tend to fish, the, the tide tends to quarter and I, not always, but I, I certainly will fish around some of the bridges and things in the area. And one of the spots, it's very, very hard to anchor because it's a soft mud bottom and the tide quarters through the bridge. So to figure out, uh, before I had that system, sometimes I would anchor, I mean, f I'm not, not exaggerating, five, ten times before I was happy with where where the boat would actually land. Um, and then even then, right, an hour later, as the tide changes or the wind changes, you still wouldn't be where you want it to be. That sounds um, so terrible. Oh. Yeah, no, it was brutal. It was brutal. And, <laughs> you know, and, and we're f I'm fishing in 30, 40 feet of water, so there's a fair, you know, it was a bit of a process every time you had to anchor or re-anchor. So I am so spoiled now with, with the, the spot lock, with the ability to spot lock. Um, but anyway, so I tend to be fairly still when I'm squid fishing, although there are nights where there's just this, like, they're just scattered on the bottom. And in which case, yeah, you, you, a slow drift is actually more effective than staying put because if you can get them to see the jig, they'll hit it. They're just, they just won't school up. They won't concentrate. So whether that's because there's predators in the area and they just don't want to do it. Like I haven't figured out Chris, why some nights that's the case. Yeah. Um, but I've, I literally, you know, I first learned that because you'd get ready to go. You'd basically give up the end of the night and you just, you pull the anchor. Meanwhile, a couple of guys still fish because you know, there's nothing to do while you're pulling in the anchor and we'd start to pick up squid and I'd be like, huh, okay. And, but you know, at that point in the night, I don't want to reset the anchor again. So you kind of would go up to like, you know, the head of the drift or what you thought might be the drift and, and sure as shit, we would you know, start picking up squid. So, so now I'm quicker to go to that. If it seems like it's a frustrating night and I just can't get them to concentrate in any number, mm -hmm. but it seems like if I do find them, they'll, they'll hit. Then I sometimes just covering grounds is the answer. Maybe that drifting from their perspective, they, it looks a little bit more like they're getting further away. I'm, I'm assuming yep. you're kind of keeping it down on the bottom a little bit more. Oh yeah. You're drifting. Yeah. As opposed oh, yeah. to whatever, like jigging up and down and getting different depths, you're probably just dropping it down and kind of dragging it a little bit, you know, and right. So they're probably, they're pro it's probably in the strike zone longer. And as it's moving away in the horizontal direction, those things are probably like, Oh shit, I better get that now. 
Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And it tends to be with the Yozori style, with the shrimp style jig. It tends to be, if we are going to drift, that's that's the jig that I'm using. And right, that looks like a little shrimp. And if you've got it on, you know, a foot and a half, you know, off the bottom on a sinker, then yeah, that just looks like a little shrimp or a minnow just kind of sliding by with the current, you know, a foot off the bottom. So you're right, that from a from a natural presentation standpoint, I have no doubt that, um that probably right looks much more realistic than, than uh, something just going up and down ver vertically in one spot, which probably in real life doesn't happen very often. I got to get down there with you one night. It's on my bucket list. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd love to have you. I say we do a little afternoon toggin because, um, you know, I don't, I don't hammer the spring tog as much in terms of keeping them, but they're certainly fun to catch. Um, and we'll do, I, you know, do a little bit of that for a few hours and then, and then, Right before it starts to really get dark, we can set up and you know, squid and see what see what we can do. Well, every time I get a chance to go talking with you down in the fall, man, that's that's one of the things I always look forward to. It, it's an absolute blast. We always have a great time, and that is a fun fishery. And you guys have done a wonderful job as charter captains and and angler associations to you know make sure it stays a great fishery. It's something that you know I've been watching from afar the last. Know, 10 years of my life and just seeing that grow to what it's become as a world-class fishery and a lot of that goes to the fishermen down there holding themselves accountable we are chris we are so excited about that that if you had told me a couple years ago that we could actually be able to get you know some of the laws changed and have some protections on these large trophy todd that that everybody is getting so excited about i would have told you it's just it's not going to happen but, but it did, you know, we were able to build this coalition of charter captains that were very concerned about, you know, the, the long-term health of the species and recreational anglers in general. And our club kind of ended up becoming the, the, the voice, you know, so to speak, but it, it was, it was this whole coalition. It was tackle shops, like, it, and even head boats were a part of this, this, that supported this. And what we basically said was, right. The, one of the few bummers about the slot with stripers is you can't catch your club record you can't catch you know your personal record like you can't catch the state record right or the world record right now yeah. right nobody can catch it so we didn't want to do that we didn't want to take away because i do think that's one of the fun like fun parts of fishing is that that chance right that once in a lifetime chance so we said listen we want to put protections on these big tog but we don't want to take away somebody's ability to to do that right to to accomplish you know that feat and so we worked with the state and we said well what if you know in rhode island in the fall the limits five tog a piece right yeah and we're like okay what if of that five only one could could be you know what we would call a trophy an absolute monster like because then you can you can still catch your state record your personal record your club like it doesn't take away any of that right you can still catch the biggest tog on the boat that day Yep. You can still get all, all that if that's what you're into. But on the same hand, we don't want people to just sit there and just hammer on these big blackfish because they grow so slow. And it's become such an exciting part of the fishery, catching these monster blackfish. Um, and we're like, you know, what's the compromise? And so we ended up working with everybody and we came up with, with one of your five fish can be a trophy, but 
but that's it. They, you know, the rest of them can all be nice, healthy sized fish. So what's regulation wise considered a trophy? So we consider anything over 21 inches on a blackfish to be, to be a a trophy, which is basically, you know, depending on how fat they are, right. In the spring or fall, but seven, eight pounds is, you know, so you can catch all the three to five pounders, which, which in all honesty, that's a really nice fillet. You can chowder that fish. You, you can do a lot with a, with a you know, five, six pound blackfish. And that's a boat limit, right? Five, five per boat. So, so it's, so it's, it's five fish per person. The charter captains, that's, it's just five fish per person. So if they have a, a five, five guys on the boat, they can, they can still catch 25 blackfish and come come home with that. But only, only five of those 25 could be large trophies, basically one a piece. Gotcha. On the recreational anglers, we're capped at ten. So just so a non-charter boat that goes out, it's a five five fish limit per person. But once you get to ten, the boat's capped anyway. Correct, and that kind of makes sense because charter boats are probably doing um, like open boat trips, and like other people split it. You know, so somebody wants to get their share for you know the time out in the water. That makes sense. Yeah, and and we wanted to support. I mean, the charter captains clearly are trying to make a living at it, you know? And so we didn't want to, when that went into effect, there was an idea that we didn't want to pinch them. Um, so, so the way it comes out is like I say, it, if I'm just on my boat with one other person, the limit's the same as it is on a charter boat, it's five a piece. But if I pack, you know, four or five guys on my boat, which I don't tend to do that often anyway, but if I do, then the boat's capped to 10. Yeah. Um, so, so that part of it. And then on top of that, of each person on the boat only one and this is even for the charter boats only one trophy per person of the five gotcha um so it was it's it's exciting and then what's really cool is that so that was in rhode island right we had that rule passed actually this will be the second year now that it's in effect in rhode island this spring and over this winter just last month i think the state of massachusetts announced that they were also going to match rhode island's regs so so now massachusetts as well has instituted the one trophy fish um, per angler. Uh, all my all my togging uh, experience has been in Rhode Island. I had never togged in Massachusetts. Um, yeah. I know we have a few kicking around our area. I just haven't gone out and tried it yet. But every year I say I'm going to. I really hope this year I get a chance to. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, I think I'll they're moving north, Chris. Yeah. I'm sorry. They're, I, I, yeah, no, then I, you know, I think some of them are coming through the Cape Cod Canal, and I suspect maybe a few are going around the Cape. But my guess is more of them are, are working their way because the canal itself has decent tog fishing. Yeah. Um, so I think they're just cut, cutting through and they're just moving up. And it wouldn't surprise me if it's a fishery that starts to, you know, over time up your way become i mean charter captains love them because oh, I, I can i can imagine you know they fight like heck they're reliable i mean it's clearly some days just like every fish right they're gonna yeah. bite better some days than others but they're pretty reliable and if you're a charter captain and you stay on top of them you can kind of learn like they don't tend to move that far day to day right it's not like a striper where you could wake up and they could, you know, the, the main group could be, you know, 15 miles away if, you know, if not further. Um, these things aren't going to do that. So they may move from one rock pile to another. They may move, you know, offshore a little bit more, certainly as the, the fall kicks in. But basically, charter captains, um, they're, they're, they're a friend of a charter, you know, in terms of, of a fish to help you um, support your, your profession. The tog are, are good fish. So... 
if you can get the population to continue to grow up there, I think the captains are going to warm to them pretty quickly. I hopped on a boat. Um, you know Dan Smith, Ultimate Gamble. I hopped I on his boat during the um, the Todd Classic this year. Was that what it was? The big one? Yeah. Like Ralph. And um, what was it? Like 200, 300 something entries in there. Oh, it was crazy. It was you crazy. guys down there just had so much, so much water and so many rock piles that you know we barely saw boats all all day which coming from my area that's super congested all the time i just couldn't believe how spread out everybody was i would have figured everybody would have been right on top of each other at certain rock piles but i don't know maybe we were in the wrong spot we didn't win but (laughs) but like it was it was pretty good for how many boats are out there right no it is amazing i know especially when you think there's a couple hundred hundred boats you know that are, that are involved right you would think it would look like uh you know some kind of of craziness but right it it, it wasn't that crowded and yeah i had a really good tour right that was i was I, we just got lucky as heck that day but um yeah my, my, my little boat um was able to I think we ended up right second in two of the Calcuttas. So I was pretty excited for, for, um, you know, we had, it was crazy, right? My, we talked about the size of my boat. So before that tournament, we took every single thing off the boat, except for safety, like everything. We emptied the entire boat except for safety gear. And then I said to each guy, you can bring two fishing poles and one bag of tackle and it better not have anything other than tog like tog gear i don't want to see a striper plug i don't want to see an albi lure I, all i want like if i'm going to put five we're going to have five guys on this boat you know i want 10 rods and i want a little tackle bag each and we're going to have you know uh, two bushels of crabs and like that's it like that's what we're going to war with yeah um so it was pretty funny because yeah. <laughs> yep yep and uh, we just got we were able to find find a little wreck that had some fish that hadn't been pestered too much you know the prior couple days so but yeah I, those tournaments are fun and um and they're and what was nice about that tournament is they gave out oxygen tablets so if you wanted to keep, you know, a couple of the big ones alive, get them weighed in and get them back, you, you could do that. I mean, they that's are the other a hardy fish, man. Yep. They yep. they live and they like we had a few in the cooler, and they in in like some water and in the live well, they were just living forever. Oh yeah, yeah. No, they're great fish. And if you throw in a couple of oxygen tablets, even in the cooler, you know, by the time you you leave the ramp or you know you put them in a in a cooler and get them to the weigh station, they they're they're fine. Um, so that was neat that the, the tournament, um, did that. And with there only being one trophy a piece, you know, in the rules, you, even though there was a lot of people in the tournament, really compared to the old days, the actual, um, number of, of tog that were kept wasn't that different than it would have been on a normal day, um, because of the new rules that, that were put into effect. I, I don't know if I I think I've introduced to him, but my uh, buddy Justin from up here I worked with on the party boats for years won the kayaks division. Yes, tournament. I, I met him. Nice guy. Yep, that was a nice fish too. He that was actually one of the he had one of the few true. He was ten ten pounds plus that fish. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, it was a big fish. He fished for an hour. He got he got like yep. one that was like nine and a half as well that he let go. Yep, yep. We had I could not break it. We we were. I was just tickled pink by with the fish that we were catching, but I could not get a 10, I mean, 10 true 10 pound tog on a real scale, you know, on a, I always joke, right. On a certified, 
fish always get smaller in tournaments but but, dance scale yeah i could not get we could not get it we our boat all five guys we ended up with a nine with a better than nine pound average um but we could not get a 10 i mean and not even close right we didn't even like they, they were nines, but they were not tens, not, right. not a single one, no matter how many fish we caught, they were not going to just weren't going to be 10 pounders. So um, I, brought, I brought some of my own gear because I wanted to see how that would work for talk. I brought some of my striper rods and I was bringing a slow pitch jigging rod. Um, I won't do that again. That's not the right tool for the job. So Dan's Dan's on a tear right now, building rods. And nice. If you were going to build me a blackfish rod, any, what off the shelf rod or any particular blanks that you recommend? Because I need to get myself set up for when I go down there with my own, my right. own one ready to go. I can't be borrowing yours, even though I love them. So, so what my one of my favorite, I have two favorite tog rods. One is a mud hole blank. It's an MHX. I think it's it's I think it's a fifty, and I tend to use it might be a forty, but I think it's a fifty. So for deeper stuff in the fall, especially when you're using six, eight, or ten, 10 ounces of lead. Um, I like that mud hole blank. That's the and, one you let me use. I love it. Yep, right. It's a really nice blank. And then I also have a crafty one custom that's got the, um, you know, the, the spiral guide system on it. And that is, it might be a, 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 a Bushido, it might be a Bushido blank. An Antec Bushido? Yeah, I think so. It, it, it's a little, a little softer um, and it, it's a little more parabolic. So, uh, you know, so that so it's a little slower on the hook set, and and some nights, some days, I really like that because I almost think it keeps me from being too quick when I'm pulling the, the you know the crab away from the tog. Um, so I kind of bounce back and forth between those two rods, um, and then my spinning. If I'm jigging like a tog jig, light light tackle spinning in the spring, I'll be honest. I just I I like a I have a Shimano Terramar. Um, that I like, right. It's, it's pretty universal. And I like, which is funny, right? I like the Southeast so that the Terramars come in a Northeast and a Southeast edition or version, I should say. And the Southeast one is tailored a little more to, to redfish and snook. And I actually like, for whatever reason, that's the one that I like to, to jig for blackfish with is, is the the Southeast version. I actually like the Southeast version better when I'm striper fishing as well. Isn't that something? They're very, they're very similar to my TFOs that I use now. I like the I like the TFOs because they have mm-hmm. more of a um, like a tapered bend to it. Like yep. As you as you apply more pressure, it bends a little bit more to that parabolic bend once you hook a fish. But yep. in terms of working lures and that fast action, those Terramars, man, you can't beat it. And again, I like the Southeast version for when I'm throwing plugs and eat quick hook sets. The Northeast version for me is good if like you're live lining bait or something like that. Yep. Um, but the Southeast version is what I would go to is if I was casting plugs and, and things of that nature. Yeah, and that's something. And they're hard to get up here. Like you, you literally have to, I have to search on the internet to find the Southeast. You know, it's when you go to order one, they, it, they always try to direct you to the Northeast. So you're really have to uh make an effort to like i don't know any of the shops that stock the southeast ones here um, i think so they I just came a special out with a order version of, of it the one thing i don't like about the southeast which is kind of why i moved away from them and went to the tfos is that the the butt's too short for me right. only like nine inches it drives me crazy right right yep yep no they're not perfect but the blank is is it, you know, I've thought a little bit sometimes about buying one and then just taking it to one of my favorite rod builders you know either either ralph or ted 
and um, be like, hey, I know it's perfect, like it's brand new, but just strip it and you know change because I know what you're saying. That's that's certainly one of the issues is that it's um, it, it it's not perfect in terms. It's not made to catch blackfish, but it's just a great blank, you know. And it's the right when you hook a blackfish. It it it's to me it's the right action and blank for a, for a jig for a tog jig. Correct. I was using my TFOs and uh, when I was going with the jigs uh, last year, and uh, no, I really liked the way those worked out. It was my conventional stuff that was just not happening for me. Yep. I so yeah, the the uh, either the 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 mud, the MHX blanks I like for for blackfish, and then I, I'm almost positive it's a bushido. It, it could be a samurai, but I think it's a bushido blank that Ralph made me um, a tog tog rod, and it it's they say it's a little bit slower. Um, but sometimes that's what you want, right? Especially three three cups of coffee in in the morning, you know, when you're all jazzed and you're blackfishing. Sometimes a little bit of a slower rod makes up for for an angler that doesn't have, you know, you know. And that's me sometimes. I'm too. I can be too too jumpy. Well, that's a good point. Whenever I go with you, I mean, you whip my ass all day, but you especially whip my ass the first half hour to forty five minutes. <laughs> I'm almost just like this guy's not going to bring me anymore if I keep losing fish here. Yeah. No, that, listen, Tog will drive you nuts. And, and, you know, and that's when you, when you have a group of people on the boat, if the person that has the least skill starts doing really good, it's almost always because of the way the bite is, they're reacting slower. And for whatever reason that day or, or that hour in the tide anyway, right, that's what you have to do. So I've kind of learned that, that that's, if I'm catching fish right away, it's usually a quick hook, so, you know, it's working fine. But if, if, if the, the kid that's never gone black fishing that I bring on the boat starts smoking, I'm, I'm like, okay, it's the problem's me and I'm being too quick. And this kid that doesn't know what he's doing is waiting until he you know, really knows he has a fish. Um, and I'm like, and that's, the, like, that's clearly why it's working the way it is. So I, I've, I've learned that um, to kind of see on the boat who's doing well early and let that kind of explain to you what the bite is telling you. Yeah, when you're haddock fishing, are you a quick hook setter on it, or do you let them nibble it and suck it down a little bit? I'm a quick hook setter. Yeah, I think I am too. I don't know. I just feel like with haddock, I know when I got them. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I like well, I like probably the second bump, uh, the tap, and then the come back again. Yeah, I've never been tog fishing, so yeah, I, I can't wait to get out. I mean, uh, every, everyone says that they talk about the bite being like a, a tap, and it's pretty quick, and you got to set the hook. And then Chris was expressing in a, a previous podcast we did about having the softer tip, and how the hook set just isn't there if you're using something that's like slow pitch. And right, you're talking right. about these HMX planks. There's one that I built. It was the first rod I ever built. I acid wrapped it. That might actually be the exact same blank, Dan. And I think, yeah, I think it, I might, think it, it might be the one. So, yeah, I gotta get, I gotta get down there and get on this because they, I, the, the fish are so funny looking to me. They got those big lips. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. No, they're great, right? And enamel teeth. They have like almost like human teeth, like round, yeah. you know, white white enamel teeth. Not not a classic fish fish tooth kind of tooth. But man, you you get a couple and like you know five, six, seven, eight pounds. I, I think I caught a nine and a half or something. Yep, you, you got a big one. You than did. You got a big tug. And um, you get one of those big ones, bigger size ones. And oh my god, they fight so hard. They're an absolute yeah. blast. I think it's interesting what you were saying though, Greg, about them working their way up into Massachusetts. 
Um, I don't think that, you know, I think with Ipswich Bay, we're just kind of limited, like, structure-wise. Yeah. But, like, you know, when you get out into, like, the Rockport area and in Gloucester, like, I could see that if, if they're there, like, they'll have a great time living there because it's just rock everywhere. Yeah, and, and, I mean, I think, right, it feels like to me that Blackfish, the population is doing really well in our area, and I think part of it is – as the as the waters warmed up a little bit, I think the growth so so clearly Rhode Island and New England tod grow slower than the Maryland Delaware tod. It's the same fish, but they're they're in their growth, you know, just like a tree, right? A tree grows a lot faster where there's 10, 10, 10 months of summer than when there's, you know, up in Alaska where there's only a few months, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the blackfish are doing the same thing. So I think just that little bit of change in the water warmth here over the last decade has let these fish grow a little faster than they used to here um they're still slower growing than they are down south but but i think they're in their zone quicker and i just think the population's doing better right they're a little faster growing Um, now do you think these fish grow like relative to their age or do you think part of it is genetics like the bigger versus the smaller one like how old is a 10 pound dog Right. So, so that's, there's a really good question because when it comes to managing them, that's one of the issues. And, and most of the actual scientific studies that have been done have been done on TOG in the Southern part of their range. So I try never to get in beefs on social media because, you know, no one ever wins, but no. you know, one of the things that you'll hear, these guys are like, you know, you're, when we were trying to protect them, there were a few people and listen, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but they were, you know, it's stupid what you're doing. It's not going to accomplish anything. These fish grow. And some of the studies they were citing were accurate, but the studies were done in Delaware, you know, where, where the water's in their growth zone way, you know, many months longer um, than it is up here. So when I talk to our biologists in Rhode Island, they think that to get into that, you know, 10 pound range, the fish here are pushing 20 years old. Wow. That, that they're yeah they're old you know they're and and some of them 30 you know 35 years so that is but some more studies should be done like that would be one of the things i'd love to see some more funding on because i i my my belief is that you know there should be some studies up north done because i just don't believe the growth rates are the same as down south so uh, how much moving around do these fish do it's just it, it amazes me that you could go to a place like a wreck that was probably holding tog and then catch a fish that's 30 years old that hasn't been caught with yep. how popular it is so so what's cool is about and that's why we part of the reason we were able to push these regs is that unlike most fish that kind of swim around and and the fish you protect here like you know striped bass right could end up in a gill net in, in north carolina um you know Tog, that's not what happens. Tog tend to just move in and out, but a state's fish in general tend to stay. Like it's one of the few fish a state can actually control what happens. I guess is what I'm saying. That you you know you're not at the whim of what a state three states down is doing. Um, so that these fish tend to they do move, but they tend to move inshore to offshore, not up and down the coast. So. And then when the water gets real cold, there's a feeling that they basically just kind of shut down and, you know, maybe they'll nibble on a barnacle or two, but they're just not aggressively feeding because in the spring, I have some friends, my son's a pretty good spear fisherman. 
he'll get tog a month before I do practically. And I'm fishing the same spot. Like I know they're there cause he's spearing them, um, but they're just not feeding. So there's a definite temperature zone where they'll hang, but not actually actively feed much. Um, and so that's part of it too. So they don't have, you know, the long, they're not feeding 12, 12 months of the year to be caught. Um, I guess they could end up in a net or something, but, um, but they'll, they'll move offshore and they'll tend to go deeper. And like, I've caught them cod fishing, just playing around sometimes off like Cox's ledge. I mean, all the way out, like wow. as far as you can get out and still find structure um, in Rhode Island in the winter. So they'll move fairly far out. Um, but they, at some point they just get hard to catch. They, they just, and then in the spring, like I say, they'll come in shallow to spawn. Um, but they're definitely in before you can catch them because my son will get them, you know, three, four weeks ahead of me. Um, and then there's some argument that these real big resident Todd don't do that. They just hang out in their wreck and that's just where they, you know, live out their, their last year. So I don't know if how true that is, um, but they, they definitely don't go up and down the coast as much as they do go in and out. So you talked about that, that springtime, like a temperature. Is there a magic temperature number you're looking at for my own sanity if I go give it a shot? Uh, here, if you don't mind it. Or I mean, right, 50, I think 50 degrees is, yeah. is, is kind of what everybody seems to cite. Yeah. Um, but I will say that, so in the spring, right, the further up the bay, like they'll definitely catch them up in Providence, up up close to the city first. And is that before, all salt water up there? Yeah, it's it's all salt, right? There's a little bit of, you know, on the the bottom of a dropping tide, there is a a little less salinity up okay. that far. But it's it's still still mostly salt. Um but they'll catch them up there first because that's just where the warmer mud and whether they're eating like sea worms or, you know, I'm not sure what they're doing quite that far up, but they're they're up there first and then you'll catch them each week as the season goes in the spring people will start catching them a little lower down in the bay um and i don't pester the heck out of them in the spring so i'll kind of wait so in rhode island there's a two-month season in the spring april and may um i really don't bother them in april because i would have to go up the bay to get them and I'm just, I'm fine with them because they're spawning in the spring. So that's what's yeah. going on. And I'm, I'm fine with it. I'll, I'll fish for them basically four weeks. I'll fish for them in for the month of May. Yeah, um, cool. And even then, it's mostly just that fun. You know, I'll keep a male or two. Um, if I catch a spawned out female, you know, I'll I keep them once in a while. But mostly in the spring, it's just that fun. Try to get a real big one. Um, and then yeah. um, I'm chasing squid at night. Now, Greg, you're a hummingbird guy, right? I do. I tender. I have hummingbird products. Yep. So, do you have a Solex Apex? What is it? What are you are you using for a fish finder? So, I've got Helix, right? I've got the oh, Chevy. Oh, you got the Helix. Um, yeah. All right. All right. I'm the I'm the guy that that, that drives drives I mean, the Chevy. All these years, but I'm happy. You're well tuned in the fishery, and you have been probably your whole life, I would assume. Um, how much has that changed the game for you, and how you fish for these fish? Are you like, are you, is there a certain strategy you've applied now? Do you spend less time at spots? Right. So, so there's two things. One is right. It, it, it is amazing, especially with Todd, because they're so structure oriented. Um, I mean, every once in a while you you'll get one where you don't think like back in the day when you could catch winter flounder, 
here in Rhode Island. Um, I've caught a few, you know, on a mudflat with a sandworm trying to winter flounder fish, and they've been big. And I'm like, what the heck is this tog doing here? So they will surprise you. But in general, right, they are so structure oriented. Um, and so the your sonar and your side scan, which which I think Hummingbird has just an outstanding side scan. Um, is is key and in the spring i'm looking for more like a broken bottom like rubble mm -hmm. again you know whereas in the fall i'm looking for heavy structure right big boulders rock piles um, wrecks and and yeah with with tug the the big decision is do you need to wait for the tide to get right or do you need to go find another spot so so that's always the battle and i don't like the real BJ, they're what I consider the really good captains, Robbie, BJ. I mean, there's plenty of excellent captains in Rhode Island, but the guys that I look up to the most, that's what they're so much better at is knowing, do I, am I on big fish and I just need the tide to change a little bit more before they start chewing? Or is there, you know, am I wasting my time? And um, so I still get caught in that sometimes. I'm, I'm, I'm far from a, from a skilled as those guys are. Um, but with the hummingbird stuff, you definitely can mark some fish, even though tog like are tight to the bottom. I can see them on my sonar when I'm on top of them. Um, are, you and then, the two, are you using the 2D or the the imaging to kind of pick those out? So, so I will typically start off with using the down imaging to find the structure, and then once I find the structure, when I'm trying to find tog, I'll go to the the 2d so I'll, I'll yeah so i'll use the kind of the high intensity right high definition view to find the structure and then once i find that structure then i'll switch over to 2d and see what's around yeah um and that's kind of how i tend to do it um and same thing i'll scan with the side scan if i want to try to you know make sure i'm where i where i think is the best the, the best place for me to be and then i'll go to the the, you know the down imaging and then i'll switch to 2d so i still like 2d i'm one of the one of the guys that i i will you know back bounce back and forth and sometimes i'll have one on 2d and one on you know down one screen on on down imaging but um i still like 2d more than a lot of guys do like, i'm primarily I'm, a 2d guy too i don't know i'm just used to it i like yep <laughs> it's just the way I roll. I mean, I do, I do do a split screen most of the time with that. Yep. Um, but if I'm just doing one, I'm usually on the 2D. Yep. And I'll tell you, with squid, you have to go to 2D. Squid don't don't show up on down imaging, right? They're just their body type is so close to the density of water that you're just not going to get like you need as much return as you can possibly get if you're trying to find if you're actually trying to find squid. Yeah. So I'll do the same thing. I'll put you know. Um, I'll do a split screen. And one of the cool things I, BJ and I used to always joke, if you, if you come across something and you mark it and it shows up on down imaging, it's probably not squid. So, you know, it could be bait fish. It could be, and it could be squid around, yeah. but if you're marking strong on down imaging, it would, boy, you would have to have that thing really, really dialed in to, to mark squid. Um, but the 2D squid show up pretty well. So sometimes I'll do split screen, and if one screen's blank and one screen's loaded, I'm like, okay, those are squid. One of the biggest questions I get from the Humminbird guys or people um, who are looking into Humminbird, um, what are you running for transducers on your boat? So I run the standard hot I, – I, I standard – the – I run a, a hummingbird transducer. It is the, I would say, their their higher end um, 
transducer, but it, it's it's a stock tr stock transducer. Is it I the don't one right up the stern mount, the transom mount. Yeah, right. I run a transom mount. Yep, and I have it set. You know, I have it really well positioned. I'm really happy with that part. And I, I think positioning is so often kind of the key you, you've got to make sure you've got clean clean water when you're running you know um i don't even have a high speed like i can i can you know when you go on this on the blogs and social everyone you know you have to have a high speed transducer you have to do this you have to, uh, i'll be honest um i guess i'm pretty lucky with my boat and i get clean clean water back where the transducer is but i can hold hold fine with that through like 22 24 miles an hour oh wow yeah and my boat that. i'm only doing 30 anyway at you know at max and yeah. at that point i'm using my g like i'm not looking for a fish at 30 miles an hour I'm yeah just not. I, have, I have to say the same thing so i have all right i have the, uh, two boats and the smaller boat i have a helix on it and it's just a helix seven but when i first hooked it up i was one shocked by the actual image quality i was like this thing is a friggin awesome yeah and then uh where i positioned it um i just set it i still have to basically i have to uh get some sealing in there i just like wanted to mess with the transducer height yeah and uh i was surprised how it holds bottom like it, it's holding bottom at 30 miles an hour and um i was like wow i guess and i look back and i don't even really have like a big rooster tail coming out or any of that it's um it's getting clean water which is great now the Solix, on the other hand, uh, the tr the transducer is so big. Um, I don't. It doesn't hold bottom like like the Helix does by any means. And I am definitely putting a. Um, I bought the throughall to have yeah. to be able to hold bottom with the DI. Yeah, it, it's right. Oh, it's, yeah. So some of it, right? Some of it's it's you know has to do with hull, right? Some of it's the transducer itself. It's amazing, but I'm I'm pretty fortunate, and I have right now. I'm, I'm really for, I have the uh, Helix 15 Generation Four, so I have one of the newer ones, and then I have a 10. I think it's a Generation Three. Um, so I have two side by side in a small boat. Um, I like having two just because it's some redundancy. I only have one transducer because that i'm not worried about it's more like my gps like if something goes wrong and you know my little boat if i'm 25 miles offshore um i think i can still get home anyway but it's it's nice to know i've got two independent gps systems yeah um, i run two as well i got a 13 apex and a 12 sol a 10 solix yep, yep. and that redundancy is really nice and then my tra my transducer setup is i have I actually have a shoot through a hummingbird shoot through and oh neat a splitter to the um the chance amount and the shoot through is nice because i can hold bottom pretty much up to 35 miles an hour no problem um you know what's really nice too is i can cruise you know along the beach along a contour line going like 18 to 23 and mark bottom and mark a school of fish and stop and pull back on it and actually it's kind of a little trick i learned with you when we were fishing block island that time um we were kind of driving around around the afternoon going pretty quickly looking for schools of bass on the on the fish finder and uh that's something i kind of applied to up here and it works out particularly in the fall when they're all clumped up in big schools moving up and down the beaches so nice nice to have that option yeah no for sure and then i am i do have my my mincota um trolling motor is linked through my fish finder so i can control it through the fish finder so that helps too um it's a really nice aspect if you if you're running both the mincota and the hummingbird to have them talk yep. to each other yep. it is and, and and i'll cheat like when we're especially when we're black fishing if you want to drop back like if if you think 
especially if you've been fishing in a spot for a while and all your your crab pieces and you know the x have all been drifting back and every time a blackfish steals your crab and cracks it up and you put another one on eventually you've started to create a pretty good jump slick especially the more you miss so it's nice to be able to just you know drop back five ten feet or again sometimes it's not dropping back because anybody with a regular anchor you can drop back but sometimes because of the way the current or the wind or the structure is you want to kind of slide you want to quarter a little bit you don't maybe want to drop straight back correct so it's just so nice to be able to be like you know not only do i want to go back do i want to go over or like in that tournament in the talk tournament we were talking about so i was sitting on a wreck i was almost like like a diver excavating the wreck I worked a grid pattern over the course of, you know, six hours. I basically did a grid pattern on that rack. Like we hit, we hit, you know, every spot you could hit on that. Like I would just jog 20 feet to the left, 10 feet back. You know, it was like playing chess five feet over. Like I just kept, <laughs> kept working and some spots didn't have much and some spots did. And, and that was, I felt by the end of that tournament, because that's such a short tournament it's basically one tide right it, it's which yeah. is awesome i mean that's so much fun it's, like, it, it's a shootout essentially yeah. you, you have one tide and maybe a little bit extra but that's that's about it um so i felt like by the end of that tide we had at some point during that tide we put a hook on every part of that wreck that i thought had a reasonable chance of you know holding the fish um, and you couldn't have done that with with an anchor it just wouldn't have and Greg, when, when I fish with you and I see how much you jog and pull up the trolling motor and just to move 10 feet this way, 15 this way, before we even put a line down, I can't even imagine having to throw an anchor down in that situation multiple, multiple times. So the amount of time that you're saving with that spot lock is just, it, it, there's no comparison, man. And you, no. utilize, you use that to your advantage. Most guys would probably be good enough, like, oh, I'm going to try here, maybe here. But you'll still work around quite a bit until you see exactly what you want to see. And All right, drop them down. Let's go. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and, and you know, sometimes you, you tr it's always a balance, though, because you want to give a spot a chance and, you you know, you don't want to just waste waste time by trying to fine tune something that doesn't need to be fine tuned. But yeah, no, I, I do believe that more often than not, it pays off to, to be where you want to be, especially black fishing, because they're not going to move to, especially at first, you know, once you get the bite going and everything, then, then maybe it's a little less um, specific. And I don't tend to chum, like in terms of actually putting a chump pot down. So, I mean, that's the other option is if you don't have the ability to do that, then you have to get as close as you can and then try to figure out a way to draw, you know, draw them to you. Um, and that, that, that's certainly viable too. I just, I don't tend to fish with chum um, very often. I'll I try to that was get a big difference because when I first started talk fishing and getting uh, exposed to it was my roommate down in um, Montauk, New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, we always chummed with crabs, you know, either a bucket or just throwing pieces over. And then when I went with you guys, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like, Oh, overall, at least when I've been with you that, you're not really doing that as much. Right. Yeah. Now, there are some guys. Difference. Yeah. There are some guys here on the do, but you know, the other thing is, right. There's just so many fish here you don't have that to. when, right. When you, well, and, and also in fish, you are not trying to catch yeah. that. If you chum here, you are going to have every porgy, every five inch sea bass. Like it's going to be, a, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a cluster. Uh, and there will be some Todd mixed in. There's no doubt. But um, especially with the guys that like these jigs now, which are, you know, a little more surgical, um, 
it's almost a disservice to chum to a certain degree because you're just going to bring everything and its brother in, you know, in for the feed. Yeah. I couldn't believe when we were down there talking, all the albies that were jumping around us all day, I, I was going out of my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's mad. Kind of albie fishery down there. Yep. Yep. And I, I got a really nice bonito this fall. Ooh, I was so excited. Nice. Um, I didn't get too many albies this year, just partly because just what I was fishing and what I was fishing for, but I got a really nice bonito and I was really excited about it. <laughs> Greg, you know, Boy, what? I, caught a, good. I caught a really nice bonito up here nice yeah. very good they are fun huh? and tasty yeah it was about three inches long <laughs> <laughs> that's funny and i was like oh my god is this a bonito yeah it's <laughs> funny in the fall you almost can't get away from the little bonito that are around like little like three to seven inch bonito and oh, actually a friend of ours caught a i think a 27 inch bonito trolling a live mackerel for stripers one time excuse me but no, that, hopefully that becomes amazing. some sort of fishery up here because that would be amazing it'd be nice yeah. to get a different species to, to target yep. yeah because i hear you talk and i it's you know it makes me jealous just because i feel like we're limited with the amount of species we have if i feel like there's a, a giant wall named cape cod <laughs> <laughs> it, rhode island is truly underappreciated other than by anglers who have been other like the more you've been other places and then you come here, you real like you would appreciate because you know what it's like. And then you come here and you're and you're like, holy cow! Like you know, when you look throughout the the year or the season, it's amazing how many different species spend you know a month or more here, and some of them for a good portion portion of the whole year here. And it's just a lot of the people here. I I always think coming from elsewhere are spoiled because they don't realize how special Rhode Island is. Um, and I, you know, I could, if it wasn't known for sailing, and if, if President Kennedy hadn't got married here, you know, if all those things hadn't happened, it's definitely got that vibe going there. Right. <laughs> I, I think I think Rhode Island, if it was just marketed different from the beginning, um, it, it, it's it would be known for its fishing because there are really an amazing amount of species um, over the course of a year that you can spend a fair amount of time catching. Well, Greg, I told the story quite a few times on the podcast, but it was on your boat where I caught five different species and five different casts with the same lure. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Yeah, no, and it's just, you know, I mean, I grew up in Jersey, and, and certainly the fishing in Jersey can be very good, but there can also be periods where you really have to work and where when you're fishing inshore anyway, there's not a lot of, you know, different species at times that you're really going to catch. And I mean, I was fortunate in the service. I fished up and down the East Coast. I fished the West Coast and, you know, all different places. And I tell you, Rhode Island, I mean, other than maybe Florida, right, where, where the same thing, you can, there's just such a variety of fish. But, I mean, aside from that, I don't know any other place where you can realistically put, you know, a half dozen or more legitimate fish that you might want to catch, you know, in the same day, in the same boat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's amazing. Cool. Well, Greg, it's getting almost past my bedtime here. Yeah, yeah, here, here. Same here. So listen, I appreciate you coming out very, very much, and we got oh, wait. you. Before we got? Guys, we have, like, just 10 more minutes. All right. Because before we started the podcast, you know, the Rhode Island Saltwater Anglers Association, um, it's so much more than the show that's coming up, and I was just hoping that uh, Greg could just talk about some of the other arms of it and what you guys are doing. Oh yes, please. Just so just so our listeners understand. Sure, it, it it's a it is a really neat organization that I'm certainly proud to be the executive director of. 
Um, and we're basically, I say we're, we're a, a three-armed or a three-legged monster, three-armed monster, whatever word you want to use, in that we have the association, which is general anglers. It's made up of recreational anglers, charter captains, and, and um, just, you know, general rec anglers. And that's, we've got a couple thousand members. And then part of that also is we have, right, as of the moment, 28, and I think we're getting ready to accept our 29th affiliate club. So we've partnered with clubs up and down Massachusetts, um, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and that each club can still make their own mind up, make their own decision on policies, but where we find agreement, we'll, we'll do the heavy work, we'll file the legislation, you know, we'll file the documents and kind of represent everybody. Um, with the understanding that if they find a particular issue that they don't support, that's okay. Um, they don't have to, you know, they're not obligated, but that certainly has helped give us strength. And with that affiliation network, when we say we can represent over seven and a half to almost 8,000 anglers. Um, so that, that gives us some, some ability that maybe help move the needle at times. Um, in addition, we have a foundation. Which, which is separate. It's the Rhode Island Saltwater Anglers Foundation, and that provides scholarships as well as um, we spent, I don't know, 10, 15,000 this last year on some fish ladder reconstruction and updating, right, to uh, try to, I, mostly for river herring, which again, while we're not catching river herring, uh, we certainly believe that a healthy river herring population is great for most of the game fishing. It area. helps us tremendously. Yeah. So yeah. we'll, we'll spend some, you know, fairly, fairly significant amount of money each year on those kind of projects, as long as we have the money to spend. Um, and then we actually also have much lesser known, but an official political action committee. And we try not to get into politics too much, right? Cause that, that's a lose. And, and I try not to, we never get in terms of like supporting a politician because they're a Democrat or a Republican or, you know, or, or an independent it's specific to, to issues. But if we need somebody to help sponsor a bill or, you know, get, get like right now we're fighting to help define the beach access so that anglers can fish and not worry about getting arrested or harassed by private security guards or, you know, things like that. So you need a politic like that's not within the fishing game department. That's yeah. that's actual yeah. state law. Next level. Right. And so you, you have to, you know work with politicians so we do have a political action arm as well um where we can lobby politicians and, and, and work on that so we try to be really selective because again i understand everybody's politics are different um but on specific issues to fishing where i think we can get some common ground and agreement those are the things that we'll we'll try to push really cool oh. and then we have our fishing show right that that's our you know our flagship event each year is is our fishing show which is coming up very very soon and we've what got are the dates what are the times Keep yeah sure yeah, and then uh, absolutely someone get tickets too if they were looking to yep come? so we've got we've got march 10th through the 12th are the dates so that's a friday saturday sunday and the show on friday starts at one o'clock in the afternoon and runs till eight o'clock at night and then Saturday, it is nine to seven. So that's a you know nice day on Saturday. You can come early, you can come late, and it's still going to be open. Um, and then Sunday is 10 to five. So we, we try to kind of cover those three days. You can get tickets at the door or on Ticketmaster. Um, so if you don't want to spend, and the line at the door can be pretty long sometimes. So Ticketmaster has become a more popular option. 
Um, I think we even have like a $250 lure gift pack for somebody that uses Ticketmaster um, to, you know, to take care of. So we've got that coming up too. And um, how much are the tickets this year? So tickets are 12 bucks. Ticketmaster probably tax on a dollar or two. Okay. Um, but they're, we try to make them, I say they're cheaper than pretty much any fishing lure you would buy. Absolutely. Um, give or take a bit, you know, so uh, we, we try not to hurt people with their price coming in. Um, we've got just before you guys literally got on the air with you. Uh, I just booked Hoagie's going to be there again this year and um, cool. fishing vessel no no limits, which is right one. Of, it's the the gals yeah, that are from, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah they they literally just booked a booth right before we got on the air with you. So we've got a awesome. couple reps from Wicked Tuna there. We've got. Um, just you yeah. know, like I said, I all, a whole year, mix. Time, time flies. Flies was there. Right. We've got a yeah. We've every year we seem to have a couple representatives um, from the show, which is cool, and especially when it changes up a little bit, so people can see different captains and um, oh, and really premiered the other night. I got to watch it. Tonight. I know. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. It just just opened up. So we we try to do that. We the other the, our other big event is we do a kids camp each summer, which is totally free for the kids and we try to appeal to kids that might not have normally, you know, an opportunity to fish so like as much as others. Um, so it's open to anybody, but we, we, we try to attract some kids that, you know, it would be a new experience for. Um, oh, so those are our two great. main events that we do. And it, it's a neat organization. I mean, I'm really excited to, to be able to represent it. Well, yeah, you guys do a lot, and definitely I don't think people understand or even I'm sure the people within your club appreciate it, but people on the outside probably don't even appreciate how much work and organization and uh, goes into something like this. And the fact that you're, you know, toting around with your group of guys there, I mean, it's, it's great. You guys do wonderful things. I think anybody that goes to the show will definitely see that aspect of it. But to know that you're also working behind the scenes with politicians, you're helping out with kids, you're you're promoting the sport in a positive way, which, you know, the more people we have doing that, the better. It's such a great sport, Chris. And really I, I, I love to represent it. And if I can do things to, you know, help with access or help ensure, like the, the, the TOG thing we were talking about. I mean, when I'm done in this position, no matter what, I'll be able to, to hopefully, you know, I mean, the laws can always change the other way, but at least for the moment, I feel like that's something that we did that will have lasting effects, hopefully for generations to come. And that kids now, or, or you know, young adults now, or anybody, when they catch a big trophy tog in a few years, you know, that may be because that fish was protected. Yeah, um, and yeah. and I feel good about that. You Rhode um, Island fishermen have restored my faith in self governance. Hey, it, it's <laughs> no seriously, it's the first time, and I kid you not, right? And the first time. <laughs> In, in, in fisheries management in modern times where a state agreed to take a cut that wasn't mandated by the numbers. So technically, right? I mean, there's plenty of cuts that happen, but almost every time it's because they're told something has to be done. Like, you know, you have the, the mid-Atlantic or Atlantic States marine fisheries or the Northeast, like somebody says, you got to cut back. Which people don't understand the mid-Atlantic controls a lot of the fish that we get up here. And I know yep. Matt... Does Rhode Island get a seat on the board? I know Massachusetts does not. Yes, yeah, so Rhode Island does have a seat. I, I should say, I believe they do. Okay. Um, and then there's the Northeast, right? There's some of these fish are co-managed. Some of these fish are managed by one. And then, of course, NOAA has the overall umbrella. Sometimes, you know, it just comes from the feds. You got to take yeah. a cut. Well, like, well, we're getting hammered on our macro regulations right now. Yes, yes. So. so that's going on. So 
it is uh, really special for us that this cut or cut whatever you want to call it or modification of the rules technically wasn't mandated by by the math it was yeah. just anglers like you and me and people getting together saying listen this is a this is like one of the last great fisheries we have can we not screw it up can we not wait until there's a problem to fix it um because as good as the biologists are and the math can be it's always late right it's always it, late it's always you guys late. recognize what a great thing like look at all the businesses bringing in people are traveling from new york new jersey maine new hampshire uh, all over the place, Connecticut, that come fish with you guys and put that money into the economy with the charter captains, the bait shops, the ramps, the hotels, all that stuff. And you guys recognize you got a really <clears throat> good thing going here and you want it to continue. And you realize that it's all based around this particular fish. And, you know, before it gets too late, you know, uh, take care of it now. Yeah, I mean, that was really our theme. You know, that was our contention that 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 for once, let's protect it before it gets to the point, especially with them being so slow growing, like we talked about. It's the last fish you want to be two or three years late with the math on. Correct. Because it's, it's at that point, you're, you know, you may be 10 or 15 years like to, to get it back to where you, you know, you were. So it was really exciting for us to be able to, you know, move the needle this time and then to have mass follow suit this spring. Just, uh, I couldn't be happier about that. That that's yeah. really, you know, there's a bunch of things I think we've done that are significant and neat, but boy, that, that one, I think for me will always be, um, well, really high on my list. You, you know, you set the standard and hopefully now others can follow the lead in their respective States. Yeah. I mean, it it can be done, right? I mean, that's, that's the one thing that it showed is it can be done if enough people, and if you can build a coalition and that, like you mentioned, it's the tech for us, everybody kind of got on board because they're like, yeah, like, you know, it is the tackle shops. It is the hotels. It is the charter captains. It was really great to see. Um, And again, like everything, right? Not everybody, you know, in the end, but, but enough, uh, enough got together to agree, which in fishing is pretty rare, right? It's like herding cats. Everybody fishes differently. Everybody has a different, you know, view. So for us to build this call, yeah, yeah. And I get that. Um, But for us to build this coalition was really special. Yeah. So, so thanks guys. Hey, thank you, man. That was great. Thanks a lot, Greg. It's great to hear hear you. you I'll see you. I'll see you soon. Right. I hope another guys, um, Chris and Dan here. Thank you, Greg, very much for coming, for coming out with us tonight. Uh, Miles of the Merrimack. If you guys want to be a member, uh, we're going to do a little extra stuff, a little extra podcast for tonight for our members. So, um, join at seven bucks a month we have all kinds of blogs videos uh we got a, spe- a couple special things going on a fish bingo tournament uh for everybody up and down the coast uh we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast um we got a flea market coming up soon so lots of good things happening over here for our members all right all right sounds good man sounds good thank you greg thanks yep. greg all right